thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Dr. Kat and Dr. Dave. Hi there. On today's show, we are probing our DNA to find out what our genes can tell us about our ancestry. We're going to be joined by Dr. Bruce Winnie from Oxford University to tell us about an ambitious project that he's doing to root through the genes of the British population. And that's the genes in our DNA, not the uh, genes that we're wearing. And also we'll be speaking to Thierry King from Leicester University, who's found a rather unusual historical legacy in the genes of a group of Yorkshiremen. And finally, we've got Professor Mike Majerus here from the University of Cambridge, He's going to be telling us more about how the environment can influence the genes of insects. But that's not all. We also have Dave, who is wearing a kilt today. Um, we're going to make you stand up so you can see it on the webcam later. If you've got the internet, go and look on the webcam, because Dave's got a kilt on. What else have we got? Well, coming up later, we'll discover how anti-dandruff shampoo could prove a clue for, how, for a new treatment for epilepsy and find out how scientists are having fun with fur. And don't forget our kitchen science. This week, you'll need three identical jam jars, one full of jam, one full of water, and one full of nothing but air. Stand by to find out what to do with them. You could win a copy of Dr. Book Chris's book, The Na- Naked Science. Fabulous book, guaranteed to uh, break the ice at parties, I'm sure. Anyway, you can also win a copy of Naked Science by having a go at our teaser. And this week, we want to know, how long would it take you to bicycle across the galaxy? That's our galaxy, the Milky Way. Um, have a guess. The nearest answer is going to win. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Well, as it looks like we're going to be running out of oil in the not-too-distant future, scientists have been hunting for an alternative to fossil fuels for use in cars and other vehicles. Now, some cars around the world are already running on ethanol, uh, which is produced from crops such as corn, but this is quite expensive to make as a fuel, and there's environmental issues around large-scale farming of, of crops such as corn. You need to do it on a very wide scale. So instead, scientists are looking at breaking down a plant molecule called cellulose, which is a sturdy chemical that makes up the tough cell walls in many plants and then you ferment the products of this to produce ethanol but breaking down cellulose isn't that easy and uh, it requires the use of special enzymes and currently the enzymes that have been used for breaking down cellulose aren't that great Uh, but now researchers at Cornell University in the States have discovered a group of plant enzymes that could potentially produce ethanol from cellulose much more efficiently than our current technologies and this would make the whole process less expensive and you could uh, get fuel from lower grade crops so things like grasses or fast growing trees and basically it's they found an enzyme that kind of clings on to the cellulose molecules and they hadn't thought that these kind of enzymes existed before and they found this new enzyme in a tomato plant and they need to do more research to find out really what it does but the scientists think that it's evolved in breaking down the cell walls when tomatoes grow as they ripen and maybe as they soften when they ripen too And the scientists have also got evidence that similar enzymes exist in many other types of plants, so you could use them for making biofuels. Um, So there's more more work needs to be done, but, for example, you could breed fuel plants with really high levels of these proteins in them, which would 
give a kickstart to the fermentation process. I guess this would mean that you could use lots of land, which is which you couldn't use for growing food at the moment. Exactly. You could use sort of uh, really scrubby plants or, or trees like poplars or, or grasses, so they don't need quite such intensive farming as corn. Brilliant. Well, astronomers seem to have found a planet, the first planet ever, which could have liquid water on it other than the Earth. In the constellation Libra, about 20.5 light years away from us, there's a star that we call Giles's 581. Um, astronomers have been looking at this for a few years and have found two large planets before circling it. One about 15 times as heavy as the Earth, um, which orbits every 5.4 days. Another one about eight times the mass of Earth, orbiting about 80, every 84 days. Um, and as they orbit, they cause the star to wobble very, very slightly. They're far too small to see, but this wobble causes a change in the colour of the light given out by the star, and they can detect these planets. Um, Giles is a very cold, weak star, so... Um, so the first planet is st- still too hot for life and water to survive, but the second is much too cold for water. Um, however, Xavier de, Flo- de Foss and a team from Grenoble uh, may have found one which is just right. Uh, the new planet is about five times as heavy as Earth and falls within the habitable zone where water may exist as a liquid. And it's the first planet other than Earth to do so. However, at 20 light years away, we're unlikely to go and visit it very soon. This is about 20 million million kilometres away and would take our fastest space probe so far Voyager 2, about 37,000 years to get there. So maybe not there, but um, so have they actually found water on it or they just think it's got water on it? Well, all they know, they know how heavy it is and how far away it is from the star, but that's all and from that they can, and they know how bright the star is from that they can work out roughly what sort of temperature it is, and it's the closest we've got to Earth so far. That's cool. I wonder if it's got anything exciting like PlayStation on it. (laughs) Who knows? Anyway, it may not seem like an obvious treatment for epilepsy, but results from a team at Johns Hopkins Medical Institute have found that a chemical in anti-dandruff shampoo might actually be useful for treating epilepsy. Now, the disease occurs when nerve nerve pathways in the brain short-circuit, so nerves start firing off inappropriately, and this can cause um, various types of fits. And this is partly due to faulty behaviour on the part of potassium channels. These are proteins in nerve cells that help calm down the firing of the nerve cells by letting potassium flow out of them. And the researchers were studying these channels and they tested thousands of chemicals to find ones that could potentially uh, boost the recovery and the activity of these channels after they'd been damaged. And one chemical that proved quite effective was actually called zinc pyrithione and that's the active ingredient in lots of dandruff shampoos. And the chemical's just the right shape to slot into these potassium channels and help the potassium flow through. Now, the lead researcher on the project was Professor Min Lee, and he thinks that these channels are like doors on the surface of the cell, and the chemical basically makes props the doors open. It makes them easier to open, and they can stay open for longer. And he says uh, it's like a tunable hinge that helps sticky doors swing freely. So apparently a nice metaphor. And the team also looked at nerve cells that had been grown in the lab that were carrying a fault in their potassium channels that's also found in certain human epilepsy conditions. And they found that the anti-dandruff chemical could actually help to boost the activity of these faulty potassium channels. Um, I mean, again, early days, more work needs to be done, but it really could uh, lead to improved treatments for epilepsy because it's not, you know, blocking something, it's not overactivating something, it's just helping a faulty channel to work more effectively. Very nice, yeah. Engineers at Philips have invented a furry TV. Well, almost a TV anyway. Um, you may remember in science lessons at school, um, being ch- someone being charged up with nice long hair with, by Van de Graaff generator, which made all their hair stand on end. Now, these engineers have come up with a way of using that to create images. What you do is you make, take a piece of fabric where the base of the fabric is one colour and the hairs are another colour. 
Now, if the hairs, they start off lying down, at which point you can only see the colour of the hairs because they're covering up the fabric underneath. But if you apply a high voltage to them, put some charge on them, they all stick up like your hair did on Van de Graaff generator because they all repel each other and they all try and get away from each other. They stand up, at which point you can see down along them to the fabric below them so you can change colours. So if you made a fabric with lots of little pixels and wired them all up and attached them to electronics, you could have a, a jumper or something and, you could press, and the computer could turn on and off these pixels and make pictures. Not just a coat of many colours, but like a coat of neighbours or EastEnders <laughs> or something. I don't know whether it could switch quick enough to actually get a TV picture, but you could definitely change the pattern on your T-shirt very quickly. Is it going to be better than those, what were they, the hyper-colour T-shirts that change colour where you sweated on them? <laughs> I think there would be advantages, to be honest. Yeah, I don't know who came up with those. Anyway... You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Dr Kat and Dr Dave. Uh, we're going to be talking later to our experts, uh, Bruce Winnie, Turi King and Mike Majerus about genes and population genetics. And um, we've had some questions in this week. What yep. question have you um, got there, Dave? A question from Ken Neugen, um, which is, why, do, when birds fly south for winter, do they fly in a V-shape? Is there some reason for them to form this pet pattern? Well, yeah, birds such as geese do fly in this V-shape. I think it's because... If you imagine the wing, the bird flying along, um, the air on its wings, the air's trying to get up round the end of the wings, and so you get, it's sort of twisting up round. You actually get a vortex, a sort of um, tube of swirling air coming off the end of each wingtip. You can sometimes see them on planes, these little vortexes at the end of the wings. Little, um, they put, sometimes put little um, tail, vertical bits on the end of modern aeroplanes to try and stop it because it wastes energy. Well, now, if, you're in, if that's happening, that's a problem for the first bird that's flying because it wastes lots of energy swirling all this air. But if you're another bird behind it, if you get on the right side of it, then you're on the side of the swirl where it's swirling upwards. So you get a free extra bit of lift because the wind's going upwards. And so, you can, so you, basically it takes you less energy to fly and it's less hard work. And now lots of, they've studied this, and actually if you look, watch the geese for a long time, they sort of share the front place, because the front, front position's a lot harder to fly, whereas the second one's nice and easy, so they kind of swap round, so as, only, so as no one gets too tired when migrating thousands of miles. Oh, isn't that nice? Um, there's a question on the Naked Scientist forum from Connie, that's on the Naked Scientist website, and she wanted to know, can you learn things in your sleep? Now, um, a couple of people had answered her, and it looks like, the scientific evidence isn't that brilliant, that some experiments have been done quite a long time ago, sort of in the 1950s, to look at whether people could learn languages like Chinese in their sleep or, or be taught to stop biting their nails. So we thought we'd throw it open to the listeners and see if there's anyone out there who's tried to learn anything in their sleep. Have they had any success? And uh, do you think it's true? Because it'd be quite interesting to see, uh, see if anyone's had any experiences of that. Um, we've also had a question in from um, Jeff Kish in America. And um, he says, I know traditionally it's been thought of that most of the gene sequences in our DNA are dead space, uh, that's sort of junk. But he heard that recently on our show that they may actually have an important function. Um, and this is true because uh, up until quite recently, we thought that around 95% of our DNA was just rubbish really <laughs> that it didn't do much and only five percent was was real genes but um in fact it looks like a lot of the 95 percent um some of it's structural and it's helping to maintain the integrity of our dna and our chromosomes but some of it's actually really important for controlling how our genes work and you actually get little uh, little messages being fired off from these pieces of of allegedly junk dna that help to control genes help to switch genes off um 
and sort of feedback cycles. And there was a really nice paper in, I think it's Science this week, from a team at the Babraham Institute here in Cambridge, where they found that one of these tiny, what's called microRNA molecules, might actually be really fundamentally important to our immune system. So um, it's quite a new field, this idea that uh, of RNA is being produced from areas of our DNA that, that aren't necessarily genes, but might be really important. And there's some evidence they may be important in things like uh, cancer and other diseases as well. So does the actual gene, is that the bit of DNA which codes, makes a protein? That's the bit that makes a protein. But then there's all sorts of other bits as well um, that get chopped out before the protein's made and, uh, and all sorts of things. So our genes are much more complicated than we thought. Uh, I've got another question here from Anushka Singh um, in New Zealand, apparently. And she, uh, she asks, what makes a cake rise? <laughs> I wish I could find out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, ideally, with a cake, um, you've make it, made it with flour and you've got a nice structure and you've got some sugar, which will taste nice. You also put, either in self-raising flour, there's already something in it called baking powder, um, or you add it, baking powder or bicarbonate soda. Now, both of these have some, um, bicarbonate soda in them, and bicarbonate soda has locked up in it a gas called carbon dioxide. Now, if you either add an acid to it, you might have played this at, at home way by mixing bicarbonate soda and add some acid to it, it makes lots of fizz, or the same sort of thing is happening in sherbet, which is why sherbet is all fizzy. Um, then this carbon dioxide is released and it expands hugely because a gas is much, much bigger than a solid. Um, and so when you put, the, put it in the cake, both uh, bica- with baking powder, it's got some acid in there already, so it will just fizz away of its own accord. Or if you cook it and you've just got bicarbonate soda in it, it's more maybe with biscuits, isn't it, just using bicarbonate soda? Um, then it gets hot and that releases the gas. That expands, makes bubbles and makes the cake rise. And there's another way, I think, with um, if you have things that don't have bicarb in but have eggs in, if you beat loads of air into things like soufflés <laughs> and they've got eggs in and then you stick them in the oven, um, the eggs then, will, the protein in the eggs will set uh, when you cook it and the air that's trapped in there is going to expand which is why your souffle goes woof and then when you take it out of the oven it goes because when it gets hot it expands right? exactly it down, it down. exactly which uh it still doesn't explain why my souffles never work anyway now it's time for our kitchen science so you can get your jam jars ready all this talk of cake my goodness by the magic of radio dave is off to st mary's c of e primary school in st neitz bye dave uh, with Naked Scientist Ben Valsler and Charlie and Kyle. Hello and welcome to Kitchen Science. We're in St Mary's C of E Primary School in St Neots and I'm here with Charlie and Kyle. Say hello, boys. Hello. And of course I'm here with Dave Ansel. Say hello, Dave. Hi there. We are getting ourselves in a sticky situation today because we're having a jam race. Now, Dave, could you explain? Basically, we've got three jars. Charlie, can you ex- tell us what's in the three jars? Raspberry jam. What's in Water. There? Nothing. Okay, that's right. So we've got three jars, one full of raspberry jam, which is quite heavy. We've got one full of water, a little bit lighter, and one full of absolutely nothing at all, just air. And we've taken two tables, we've turned them upside down, and we've put a video under each end, so maybe a centimetre and a half at one end. So basically you want a very gentle slope, and then we're going to race them down those slope and see which one comes in first. Charlie, which one do you think will be fastest? I think the raspberry jam one will be. And why do you think that'll be faster? Because it's the heaviest and it, if it's on slope, it will go down quicker. And Kyle, which one do you think is going to win? Um, the water. Because water, sort of in between, it's probably got the best friction between both. 
So if you happen to have three jam jars at home, one full of jam, one full of water and one just full of air, then please feel free to try this. Set up a slope somewhere. Call in. Tell us which one you think will win. And uh, there's probably a prize in it for you. For now, though, back to the studio. So get your jam jars and have a go. And if you get it right, you could win a copy of Chris's book, Naked Science. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, (laughs) on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Now it's time to head over to the States to hear the latest science update from Chelsea and Bob, who've been looking at the science of shopping. This week for the Naked Scientists, we're asking that age-old question, why do you buy what you buy? I'm going to tell you how the number of choices you have in front of you makes a difference. But first, Chelsea informs us that celebrities don't seem to have the power over our minds that some companies seem to think they have. We aren't sure if it was this way in the U.K., but Catherine Zeta-Jones was once as synonymous with T-Mobile in the U.S. as its ubiquitous jingle. That is, until last year, when T-Mobile dropped her as its spokesperson and said it would instead use everyday sorts of people in its ads. Well, new research from marketing professor Brett Martin of the University of Bath seems to vindicate that decision. His team found that people who buy products to impress others were more influenced by ads with so-called typical consumers than those with celebrities. Martin says this may be because the unknown spokesperson seems like someone you might actually meet and get a chance to impress. What this means is that it may be uh, more effective to spend less money getting typical consumers rather than more money on expensive celebrities. On the other hand, some of the nearly 300 volunteers had no interest in impressing anyone. They looked only at the product specs. Thanks, Chelsea. If you're opening an ice cream parlor, you might think it's better to offer 60 flavors than a measly six. But some studies have shown that consumers actually buy more when given fewer choices. To better understand this, Dartmouth College cognitive psychologist George Wolford and his students tried to sell up to 20 different kinds of black pens. Then they charted their sales success against the number of choices offered. We found that it peaked at 10 and went down on either side of 10. But we strongly felt that if you had other items, probably more complex items, we would expect it to peak at lower numbers. The findings demonstrate that more selection can in fact be a good thing up to a critical point. He says this probably applies not just to buying a TV, but also to choosing a career or even a spouse. Thanks, Bob. We'll be back next time with more science stories delivered with an American accent. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, oh, naked ones. Thanks, Chelsea and Bob. And you can find out more from their Science Update team from their website, which is scienceupdate.com. The Naked Scientists. Supported by the Wellcome Trust. We are today talking about populations, uh, the genes in populations, and we are joined by Bruce Winnie, who's from the University of Oxford. Hello, Bruce. Hi, Kat. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Yeah. Excellent. And um, I understand that you are carrying out a large project funded by the Wellcome Trust that's trying to find out about, you know, where, where did British people come from? What's in our genes? Can you tell me a bit more about this? Yes, that's right. Well, what we're doing is we're looking to collect about 3,500 samples. Um, We're looking for blood samples so we can get DNA from them. And we're looking to collect samples from people from throughout the UK. And once we've got these blood samples, we're then going to look at a lot of genetic markers and then create a genetic map of the British Isles. So what sort of markers are you looking for? Tell, tell us a bit more about the technique you'll be using. Well, some of the, some of the 
we're basically looking for markers which will um, might give us differences between different parts of the region. So some are more common maybe in the northeast than the, than the southwest or, or and vice versa. So typical ones that um, people might might think of that we'll look at are things like the um, ABO um, system. So this is the blood blood grouping system that um, most people know about. So they're either AO or B or AB. Um, and so we'll look at markers like that. There's an, uh, another marker system um, which is involved in um, uh, immune, uh, sort of your, your immune response, so um, how you respond to pathogens and things. And it's also involved in uh, rejection of tissues and tissue typing. And this is known as the HLA system. Um, and this is one of the most um, diverse um, uh, genetic markers that there are in humans. And then another one that's a, that seems to be really interesting um, in our initial studies is one called um, MC1R, which is a melanocortin uh, 1 receptor, which is involved in skin color, and it's also um, associated with red hair. So you might think that some of these sort of ideas, different differences in hair color and skin color, genes involved in those might well give us uh, uh, differences between different regions. So these are the sort of markers we're looking at. And what, where are you looking across the country? What we're looking is we're looking throughout the UK, but we're actually particularly looking um, for rural communities. So we're looking, we've actually got um, quite strict criteria. What we're looking for is looking for uh, uh, people who've got four grandparents born in the same area. So that's a sort of 30, 40 mile radius. And we're looking for people in rural areas rather than the big major cities. Because if you, the thing about big cities such as sort of, I don't know, Leeds, Manchester, London, Birmingham, places like that, is that over the over the last sort of 500,000 years, there's been a lot of movement and mixtures of peoples into those cities from throughout the surrounding countryside and, in fact, indeed, throughout the world. So by focusing on uh, rural areas and by focusing on people who've got four grandparents born there, they, those volunteers are likely... Their families have been in that area for many, many generations and they uh, will be good representatives of the area. So what, what do you think you're, you're going to find? What... Are you going to be able to look back and say, well, you're a Viking? Are you hoping to find that far back? Well, there's various things we've, we've, we can do. We've, do, we've, got, we've done um, some preliminary analyses on sort of a small number of samples. Um, and there's a couple of interesting things that come out of this. So one is that um, there's actually a marker that's on the, the Y chromosome. So that's the, male, the chromosome that defines maleness and, and goes through, through men. And there's a particular version of that, um, which um, uh, Turi could probably tell you a lot more about, um, because that, this is her speciality. But there's a particular version of that, which is found in about 25% of Norwegians. And then as you go sort of further eastwards along sort of northern Europe there, it gets more and more common. It's also found um, in uh, the Orkney Islands. It's found 33% of men in the Orkney Islands have this version. But in the rest of uh, the UK and in uh, most of the rest of Western Europe, it's actually incredibly rare. So here we do have what is actually a very rare but uh, very unique in that we have a specific marker which is associated with the Norse Vikings. Um, and, uh, but in general, I was going to say, it's, it's, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. This is... This, 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 this is an, um, this is, this, this is um, something that doesn't happen all the time. But what you can do is you can look at collections of genes and collections of markers and look at frequencies in different places. And we're beginning to show that there are... We can see differences between the, the Celts, the Celtic fringe, which sort of represents of the ancient Britons from the, from the Neolithic times before the Anglo-Saxons came in, 
and the Anglo-Saxons themselves. So we can begin to look at these sort of historical differences. And I understand that um, as well as looking at where our populations have come from, there are other health aspects. What, what other things can you find in our genes? Well, this is um, the main reason for doing this, or one of the main reasons for doing this, is, is from a medical point of view, which is why the Wellcome Trust have funded it. And we're going to use this um, sample set uh, to help us search for genes that make people susceptible to diseases. And these are in particular the common diseases and complex ones such as heart disease, cancer and mental health diseases. Um, and to understand how we can do that, um, you need to sort of realize, think about how researchers tend to do these sorts of experiments. What they do is they, a researcher might be working, say she works on diabetes, and over the years she'll have uh, built up a collection of diabetes patients. She'll then get a group of people who don't have diabetes and uh, look for genetic differences between the two groups, so the groups of patients and the groups without the disease. So anything that's uh, more common in the group of patients is likely to be associated with the disease. So what we're doing is we're setting up a UK, what we call a control population. So this is a group of, of an average sort of selection of people from throughout the UK that can be used in any of these sorts of studies for any of these diseases. So if people are interested in taking part in your study, um, tell us again what the criteria are and, and how can people find out more? Okay, well, we, as I said, the criteria are that we're looking for people who've got ideally got four grandparents born in the same area. And by area, I mean parish, county, 30, 40 mile radius or something like that. And we're looking for rural areas, so we're, we're specifically, as I say, excluding the big cities like Birmingham, Manchester and London. Um, and we're still recruiting. Um, we've, we've got about 1,900 of our samples, um, and so we're des still desperately looking for lots of people. And if you want, people are interested and they think they fit the criteria or know people who might do, they can go onto our website, which is www.peopleofthebritishisles.org, and um, you can, uh, there's details of who to contact and how, how, to, how to volunteer through that. Sounds great, because a lot of our listeners are in East Anglia, and that's quite a lot of rural populations there. So if anyone out in the Fens is listening, have you, where, where in the country have you managed to get people from so far? Well, um, East Anglia's been very good for us, particularly Norfolk. We've um, just about got all the, all the individuals we need from Norfolk, but we're, we're still looking for Suffolk. Um, so we, we, need, we need people from Suffolk to sort of uh, match that up. Um, uh, other countries, actually Lincolnshire, we've actually just about finished. But basically, um, every other county that we're, we're interested in, so from places like Cornwall, Devon, Oxfordshire, uh, South Wales, North Wales, uh, Cumbria, um, and places in Scotland, we are still actively recruiting. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's basically just about any, anywhere in the country where there's, where there's rural populations, um, we're, we'd, we're interested in hearing from people. Brilliant. So that's www.peopleofthebritishisles.org yep. Well, thanks very much, Bruce. And uh, in a minute, we're going to be talking to Turi King, who's, as Bruce mentioned, uh, she's an expert on the Y chromosome and how that can be used for, uh, for mapping, mapping how populations have changed and where people have come from. But I think Dave has an answer on a question that's come in. Had a question from Jeremiah Saringer um, from Canada, who he's seen ducks swimming along in a lake, even in the winter when it's really, really cold. And he'd have thought that it ought to really freeze their feet, or at the very least, and give them hypothermia. Now, birds, things like ducks, have actually got a very clever circulation, um, because they've got blood going down. So they obviously need some blood in their feet, because otherwise they'll die and curl up. First thing they do is they don't really have any muscles in their feet. 
it's all done with tendons. So the muscles are up in their warm body and there's just sort of strings called tendons running down which pull the feet around and pull the legs around. So first of all, there's not a lot there that you have to keep warm. The other, but they still need to, to get some blood down there and you don't want that get, making the body too cold. So what you do is you have a blood vessel going down um, which wraps around and round and round the blood vessel coming back up. So the blood vessel going down transfers as much heat as possible to the cold blood coming up and, uh, and, and thus the, so, so you don't lose as much heat. So it's like a heat exchanger for taking the heat. Instead of say, sending it down to the feet, you send it to the blood coming back up again. Well, there you go. That's how uh, birds don't get cold feet. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat, and with Dave as well. And we're talking populations and our genes. We're getting inside our genes on The Naked Scientists. And we're joined now by Turi King from the University of Leicester. Hi, Turi. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? I'm fine. I lost saw you on the telly. Did you? Did. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, what was that on, dare I ask? You were, you were on the breakfast show and you were talking oh, about this yes. research. Yes, that's right. So, um, anyway, what... You've been looking at how, how our genes are spread through populations, basically, and where we've come from. So can you tell us a bit more about this study where you've, you've basically found Africans in Yorkshire? That's right. Well, actually, what I've been doing has been part of a larger um, PhD project, which was funded by the Wellcome Trust. And it's been looking at the link between Y chromosomes and surnames. And one, the interesting thing that we're kind of looking at here is that the Y chromosome is just passed down from father to son. So if you've got a Y chromosome, you're a male. And then surnames are also passed down from father to son. So you would think that there might be a link between a type of Y chromosome type and a particular surname. So there are a lot of things that can kind of break this link. One, the obvious one is illegitimacy, where you have um, you know, one man's Y chromosome type but another man's surname. So that's going to break the link. And adoption will do the same sort of thing. Uh, and the other thing is numbers of, of founders for a particular surname. So if you look at the surname Smith, there's going to be a number of different founders for that particular surname because it comes from Blacksmith. So you'd expect there'd be a number of different Y chromosome types associated with that surname. But if you start looking at rarer surnames, you find that quite often there's a single Y chromosome type or you know just a handful associated with a particular surname. So one of the surnames I looked at was Attenborough and um, two different spelling variants of that. So Attenborough as in David Attenborough, but then the Attenborough spelling B-O-R-R-O-W. And 87% of them, regardless of spelling variant, are descended from one individual. And then you get a handful of other Y chromosome types associated with the surname. We don't know whether or not they're illegitimacies or adoptions or whether or not they were other people who had the Attenborough surname, but they just haven't had so many descendants and we haven't sampled so many of them. So so tell us about this, um, the research in Yorkshire. So you found a, a Yorkshire family or people with a Yorkshire surname yeah and um so I understand they're they're a white population but they have African ancestry how did you find that out well they originally when I was kind of just starting the PhD we put in advertisements in the local newspaper Leicester Mercury this kind of thing and about 421 uh, men responded and I was just typing their Y chromosomes expecting to find you know typical European ones that you find and then I came across this really unusual type so I showed it to my supervisor, Mark, and we were kind of, hmm, maybe I've made a mistake. So we sort of tested it more and found out that it, was, it belonged to a really rare African Y chromosome type that's only found in sort of West and North Africa, and there's only 26 other cases of it in the world, and they all trace back to this really you know, confined space, and it's a really rare type. So then what we thought was, okay, well, 
let's look at this surname. Are there other people with this surname who've got this Y chromosome type? So I recruited another 18 men, and seven of them had this rare Y chromosome type. So we knew they all had to be related. We just didn't know how. So we commissioned a genealogist to look at their family trees, and they managed to trace it back to two family trees, back to 1788 and 1789. But they couldn't join them up. But they all originated in... Yorkshire, and, and looking at the kind of genealogical evidence and the genetic evidence, they probably kind of join up probably in the early 18th century. So how does this fit in with the history of, of black people in Britain? Where where do you think this originally came into the gene pool? Well, there's a, a couple of, of kind of really obvious routes. One is the Romans, because they had a garrison of Moors who were guarding Hadrian's Wall in AD 200. So that's a possibility. But more likely is going to have been the slave trade, because you had the first... Uh, Africans arriving in this country in 1555. And um, again, West Africa, which is where a lot of the slave trade came from, and there was just the sheer numbers of, of, of Africans coming into this country as domestic servants and uh, this kind of thing. You'd expect that that's the most likely route that they came in. And so where, where do you go next with this, or have you got a new project on the go? Oh, well, I'm writing up the PhD at the moment, <laughs> and then I've got a... <laughs> um, one of the other things that, that came out of the research was that uh, because there's so much sharing of Y chromosome type within surnames, particularly rare ones, you can actually start to use a Y chromosome type to predict a surname. And I just did this in a, in a small pilot study using 150 different surnames. And I took two guys at random from around the country who had with these 150 different surnames. And then I looked to see how often it was that they shared a Y chromosome type. And I found that, you know, if you take two Smiths at random, uh, they don't tend to share a Y chromosome type. But if you take two kind of, I don't know, um, Revis, uh, for example, then the chances of them showing a Y chromosome type is actually quite high. So out of this small pilot project, I found that I could predict kind of across the board correctly using just the Y chromosome type. 19% of the time I could correct the I could predict the correct surname and if you just use the rare half of the surname so like the lower 75 you can it goes up to 34%. So there's implications for this in using it as an investigative tool for the police whereby they could put in a Y chromosome type from a crime scene and then they could get it to to bring up surnames and then it might get them to prioritize the list if they had see a surname they kind of go mm, that's a local surname or oh we kind of know we know there's a suspect with that surname they could then prioritize who they want to interview first. I mean, it would never, ever replace um, standard research. It's just an investigative tool as a way of sort of prioritizing suspect lists. But it could be quite a powerful one to kind of cut times down in terms of investigations. Because I, I think our Dr. Dave, being an Ansel, I think he's got a quite Ooh. rare name. I reckon. He does, yeah. That does, in fact, I've got my surname's dictionary here, so I kind of thought, ooh, <laughs> I can look it up. How do you spell that one? So if, is it... Of course, this research only um, Ansel's A A N S E double L. A N S E double L. Hang on, let me just have a look. We'll find out. That's right. Hang on, let me just have a look because I'll I've got it here. Is it even in here? It could be so. Ansel English, chiefly is East Anglia. There you go. From a Germanic personal name, composed of the elements ants, god, and helm, protection. So helmet. So god helmet. <laughs> I'm going to start calling Dave God Helmet. I think you should. <laughs> From now on. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, it was bought to France by a famous medieval churchman, apparently. 
Excellent. Well, there we can't, you go. can't do that with Dr. Chris because he's Chris Smith, which is very boring. Oh. <laughs> um, but what, what else can, can Y chromosomes generally tell us about populations? Because obviously it doesn't work for women. But um, No, it doesn't. It just tells you about the male um, half of the population. But like what Bruce is doing, which is a really interesting study, he's looking at the types of Y chromosomes. Well, not just Y chromosomes because he's looking at other parts of our DNA as well. But looking at the Y chromosome, it's quite a nice, neat, compact little piece of DNA that, that doesn't change very much from father to Son. So it gives you a nice clear record of um, our ancestry, well, male ancestry. So like this thing where he's been looking at um, the marker M17, which is found at higher frequencies in Norway and at lower frequencies elsewhere, it's a nice way of saying, well, okay, you've got a particular type. At M17, you have got the type that's found in, in Norway, so you have a higher chance of, be, of having ancestry that's from there. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. I wish we could talk yeah. about this all day. <laughs> and my mum's very into family history, so she's, she? I hope she's listening to the Ooh, show. Well, you've got my email. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks very much. That's Turi King from the University of Leicester. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat, and with Dave, and we're talking about genes, genetics, populations. And coming up next, we're going to be talking to Mike Majerus about the mysterious case of the peppered moth. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat, and with Dave. And uh, earlier in the show, we asked you if anyone's learnt anything in their sleep. And um, we've had a text in from Tony in Berries and Edmonds who said, Petula Clark once said that she learned her songs in different languages in her sleep. So <laughs> maybe that's the case. Um, we've had a question from Steve in London, which is how many calories does an adult use at the most idle time per hour? It's actually a very, very woolly answer is all I can give because that really depends on how big you are, what sex you are, how old you are, in fact, how much exercise you are because muscle burns a lot more energy than fat does. And so the general vicinity is about 70 to 180 calories, 70 for an old woman, a small old woman, 180 calories for a large, muscly young man. Hulking chap like yourself. Every hour. <laughs> Every hour. Anyway, our guest left in the studio is Mike Majerus, who's a professor of evolution at Cambridge University. Hi, Mike. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing very well this afternoon. Good. Um, so you are, I suppose, a, a lepidopterist? Is that um, how you call oh, yourself? Yeah, well, I'm just a bug man. A bug um, man. Yeah, I do lepidoptera. I also do ladybirds. And um, the thing we're going to talk about today is your work about moths. Uh, tell us a bit about moths and tell us what they can tell us about evolution. Well, um, I work I work with one moth in particular, which is a very famous moth, and then a couple of hundred other species, which are very much less famous. These are the British moths that have black forms, sometimes called melanic forms. And some of those only have had black forms since the Industrial Revolution. The most famous one is a thing called the peppered moth, and it first had a black form, or the first black form of it was found in 1848 in Manchester. It spread, this black form increased very rapidly. So by, well, within 50 years, by the end of the 19th century, 98% of the Mancunian peppered moths were black. And there was a, a famous Victorian lepidopterist called Tut who suggested in 1896 that... Um, the reason for that was because the tree trunks had all lost their lichens because of um, well, acid rain, effectively, and then soot fallout had blackened the tree trunks, the black form was harder to see on those trees, and birds therefore selected, naturally selected, the black form because they ate the other form, which is white with black speckling. 
So let's go back a bit. Where would this black form have come from? Just a chance mutation. So in um, a, one of the genes that's responsible for pigment. Yes, when you were, when you were talking earlier uh, to Bruce, he mentioned a thing called the MCR1 uh, gene. Now, that is a melanic gene. We have lots of them, um, and so do le- the Lepidoptera. There's lots of different genes, and this is just a particular mutation, a particular change in one of the pigment genes which produces black all over the wings instead of just in a speckly pattern. So once this had arisen randomly, those insects weren't getting eaten so much, yeah. so it, then they could breed and it would spread. Yes, the idea is that this mutation would occur every now and then, back over thousands of years, but usually it would be a disadvantage, so it's selected out. Once the environment had changed and they were with pollution, then it became an advantage, so that spread. And um, I understand, um, I mean, I've, I've sort of locked horns with creationists occasionally, but some creationists say that the original experiments that were done to prove this, because it's a lovely example of evolution at work, it's something changing in the genes and in response to the environment. Um, but some people say that the results weren't very well done or uh, th- that it's not accurate. Yeah, well, this is... This is um there's a, a very uh, interesting lepidopterist called Bernard Kettlewell, who in the 1950s did some what are classical experiments. This is what's in all the school textbooks, where in two different woods, once a polluted wood and one a non-polluted wood, he released live moths of both forms onto tree trunks, and he saw in Birmingham that the birds took far more of the pale form, so the black form was successful in polluted Birmingham, and down in Dorset... It was the other way around. So the black form on the trees that still had lichens was taken far more than the the pale form. Um, Now, in the last 10 years or so, um, right through um, since the 1950s, scientists have gradually tinkered with Kettlewell's experiments, said he did it at too high density, he moved moths from one location to another and so on. Um, So um, scientists have been saying, you know, this might not be as absolutely accurate. But then about 10 years ago, the creationists started not only saying that this wasn't, these experiments weren't valid, but actually saying, um, or some of them, saying that Kettlewell faked his results. He was, he's accused of fraud. Um, unfortunately, both Bernard Kettlewell and his mentor, who also has come in for a lot of criticism from um, the intelligent design and the creationist people, um, Kettlewell's mentor, E.B. Ford, um, they're both dead. And so I decided that because there was so much criticism, if you actually put peppered moth into Google, you get more hits on creationist websites than on biological websites, which just seems to be the wrong way around. Um, so I've been, since 2001, doing a, uh, a new predation experiment, which what I try to do is correct for every single one of the flaws that people have pointed to in the way Kettlewell did it. So actually, pepper moths don't usually rest on tree trunks. They rest underneath lateral branches, um, sort of in the shadows there. So I put them in the right place. I let them, within a limited arena, choose their own resting site. They can fly at night and then rest themselves. So I'm not just telling them where they've got to sit. They do it themselves and so on. And unfortunately, this takes a tremendous amount of time um, because I have to do it at the density that the moths occur in nature. So I can only do rather few per day. So it's going to take... I'll finish this year, thank goodness. (laughs) Um, And hopefully that will either say that Kettlewell is wrong, 
In which case, um, I'll probably get the front of the Times and the front cover of Nature. Um, Evolution does will, not happen. Yeah, you know, well, not in that particular case. Or it will turn out that he's right. And then, I mean, I, I would hope that some of the critics of Kettlewell and Ford would then admit that they were wrong. Although, given that creationists tend to, if you prove one thing, they tend to just move the goalposts, uh, which is why we now have this strange thing, intelligent design. Um, so I really doubt um, that, that we will actually ever change anyone's mind. But or really what I'm trying to do is say that the Peppered Moth case is or isn't a good example of Darwinian evolution in action and try to keep creationists out of science class. Well, that's a, a subject for a whole other show, I think. But let's let's talk a little widely um, about insect populations and how they respond to the environment. Are there other examples of how insect populations have changed? I mean, are we seeing populations changing as climate's changing? Oh, yeah, populations change. Whether these this is actually affecting the genes so much. You see, one of the strange things that, that, that many people who think about evolution... Um, don't quite understand is that there's a huge difference between somewhere like Galapagos, where Darwin did many of his observations, and us. And by us, I mean Britain connected to continental Europe until a few thousand years ago, and the great continents. If climate is changing, what will happen here, or in Europe and Asia and connections to Africa, things will simply move. They move first, they adapt second. So if they can move, they will simply move. So what we're really seeing is a lot of southern European species coming up here now, um, turning up and managing to survive. So, so we, We've got a question about ladybirds here from Michelle, and she says, we have very strange bumps on a plant in our garden. We've also seen a lot of black with red spots ladybirds. Uh, traditionally, I think that ladybirds are red with white spots. So um, uh, is this is this the case? Are these Where are these ladybirds coming from? There's also some pictures of the... Oh, uh, wonderful. Pictures. I love pictures. I just have to put my glasses on now, though. Um, <laughs> OK, well, the bumps... She says, the, are they hatching from the bumps? No, the bumps have got nothing to do with the ladybirds. They look... The, the pictures aren't that distinct. I suspect they're ghouls. Um, that's, well, that's possible. It's also possibly a wayfarer tree, which actually has natural bumps on its bark. Uh, that's part of the plant <laughs> development. But the ladybirds, anyway, because okay, why lady are we birds, seeing black, black ladybirds? Yeah, black with red spots rather than red with black spots. Um, black spots. We have three native species that are always black with red spots, the pine ladybird, the um, kidney spot, and the heather ladybird. Uh, we have two other species, the two spot and the ten spot, that sometimes are black with red spots, but they can also be red with black spots or orange with black spots. And that's one thing I work on, because they're polymorphic. It's a bit like us having black or blonde or red hair and so on. So you can work out... That's all genetically controlled. And, of course, now, if she's suddenly seeing lots which are black with red spots, she may be seeing the new one, the Harlequin ladybird, which arrived in 2004 and is now spreading like mad um, and taking over from a lot of our native ones. And we study that because, as it's just arrived... We can study all sorts of things in that because it's having to adapt to the British climate. And unfortunately, you know, the British climate, other environmental factors. Unfortunately, although it's beating all our native ladybirds at the moment already, it's going to get even better at doing it. So 
goodness knows what's going to happen in the next 15 years. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat, and with Dave as well. And we've just got a few minutes left of the show. So in this time, we're going to head back by the magic of radio to St St. Mary's Primary School to find out how the jam jar racing is going on. Hello again. Welcome back to Kitchen Science. We're still here at St. Mary's Primary School. I'm still here with Kyle and Charlie. And we're going to race these jam jars. So I hope you've got your slope set up at home. Or I hope you've called in to let us know what you thought would happen. So again, Kyle, you thought the one full of water was going to win, didn't you? Yes. And that was because you thought the friction would let it slide more easily? Yeah. Okay, and Charlie, your bet's still on the raspberry jam because it's heaviest? Yeah. Okay then, I'll let Dave count us down and then we can see what happens. So first of all, we're going to race the strawberry jam and the air. So Charlie, if you'd like to hold those two and to find out which is the winner. Three, two, one, go. The jam. jam is the winner. OK, now we'll try the water against the air. Three, two, one, go. The water is the winner. So at the moment, both the water and the strawberry jam have beaten the air, so the air's obviously the slowest. We're going to do a race between the strawberry jam and the water and see which one's going to win. Three, two, one, go. The water one against the strawberry jam. Yes! <laughs> I've held all of these. The jam is heavier. And surely the heavier thing is going to roll down the slope quicker. Well, why on earth would the water win? Well, how fast things roll down slopes isn't to do with how heavy they are. Because the heavier they are, the more mass they've got, so the harder they are to start moving. But also, the more mass they've got, so the more they're pulled down the slope. However heavy something is, it ought to roll down the slope at the same speed. What does change is where that mass is. Because if you look at the air jar, Charlie, how far out is all the weight in that jar? Is it near the middle or near the outside? It's near the outside. That means that for it to start rolling, all of that weight's got to move and be rolling. So it's got to be moving down the slope and it's got to be spinning. So that takes more effort to spin it up. So it takes it longer to start spinning so it rolls down the slope more slowly. Now, if we look at the strawberry jam, if you think of the jam in the middle of that, does that move when it's spinning? No. So to spin that, you've got some weight which isn't actually having to be spun. So you need less effort to start it spinning, so it will go down the slope slightly faster. And if we look at the one full of water, now if you spin that, what do you think happens to the water? Do you think the water moves? It all swells round. The water moves. Well, does the water actually move or does it stay still? What we'll do is open the jar and we'll put some dust on the top. Now I'm going to spin that jar and see what happens to dust. The dust moves a little bit. Does it move nearly as much as the jar? It moves less than the jar does. So the water almost stays stationary when the jar spins around it. So when this is rolling down the slope, the only bit of the system which has to move is the jar itself, the glass on the outside. Whereas all that water just doesn't roll at all. It doesn't have to spin. So it's got all that weight of the water pulling it down the slope, but it doesn't have to spin that weight. So it goes even faster. So the water should win, and then the jam will come second because the weight's near the middle, and the empty jar will be the slowest because all that weight has to spin really a lot. Well, I hope that that's what you found at home, that the jar full of water went faster than the heavier jar full of jam. But for now, from St Mary's School in St Neots, and from Charlie, and from Kyle, and of course Dave Ansel, I'd like to say goodbye. 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 Charming. And there's more kitchen science for you to try at home on the Naked Scientist website, which is www.nakedscientist.com. Anyway, um, we're getting close to the end of the show. 
Um, we have had a few questions in. We had a question in from John Reynolds in Chesterton who wants to know, what does junk food consist of? Uh, what does something need to contain to be qualified as junk food? Um, I don't think it's a scientific label. My friend at the Food Standards Agency says they don't say junk food anymore because um, you, know, you can't really quantify it. I think I go by the ruling, if it tastes good, it's probably bad for you. But uh, there's not a scientific measure of that. Um, and anyway, we've had a good answer in on our teaser. So we've got Amy. Hello, Amy. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. You've been enjoying the show? Yes, it's great. Cool. Anyway, we wanted to know, how long would it take you to cycle across the, uh, across the galaxy? How long do you think? 60 billion years. 60 billion years. Uh, we had Jim and Kaystor who wanted to know if there's a proper cycle path across the galaxy. <laughs> but anyway, here's Dave to tell us how close you are. That's a very good answer, actually. Um, the galaxy is about 100,000 light years across, um, and there's about 10 trillion kilometres in a light year. Um, and there's about, um, which comes out as about, I, I got about 700 um, billion years, which is actually very, very close to your answer, so you're going to be our winner. We had a couple of uh, interesting comments. Um, one from Fred and Scott in Maudlin, who reckons the universe is expanding faster than 15 miles an hour, so you'd never be able to get there. Um, but I reckon that the universe is expanding in between galaxies, not much in the galaxy, so it doesn't quite work. Anyway, 60 billion, uh, my, my answer is about 50 times longer than the life of the universe, so it's not going to happen soon. Yeah, so all the, all the people who said longer than the lifetime of the universe, you're kind of right, but we wanted a, a good guess. So thanks for taking part, Amy. All right. We're going to send you a book. Yay! Yay! <laughs> That's a great present. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Okay, right. bye. Bye. Well, that's about all we've got time for this week. And next Sunday on The Naked Scientist, there'll be a Q&A show. So email all your questions about science, medicine and technology because Dr. Chris is back. And, uh, and he and the team are going to be answering all your questions. So any particularly horrible ones you've got, maybe about squirrels or about the universe, anything, get emailing them in chris at thenakedscientist.com. And also on our Kitchen Science, you can find out how to make a camera with a magnifying glass. So don't miss that and get your magnifying glass ready. If you've missed any of the show, or if you want to listen again, then you can download the podcast from our website. That's www.nakedscientist.com. And it's packed with all sorts of other stuff about science and technology. There's articles, there's um, a heads up on next week's show. And as well, there's the podcast archive, so you can go back and listen to them all if you really want to. And also, if you want more uh, of the latest in science, then you can listen to the podcast from Nature, which you can find at www.nature.com slash nature slash podcast. So go and check that out as well. I'd just like to say thanks to our guests. That's Bruce Winnie, Cheery King and Mike Majerus. And also to my co-pilot Dave tonight, to Petro, who's done a fantastic job of working the desk while Chris has been away, and to the production team of Ben, Azzy and Sabina. Dr Chris will be back with you next week, so it's all OK. And uh, you can find us again on the Naked Scientist podcast. Bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.